Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans, episode 12. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me this week, a return guest, one of my favorite co-hosts, Zach Boniker. Zach, how you doing, sir? I am great, Ryan. Always great to be here. Thanks again for, for having me. We've pulled in another host to join us tonight, a very special guest, Mr. Woody Zool. Woody, how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing great, Ryan. So I'll share you right off the bat a little saying from Tom Peters. And excellence is about the next five minutes. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> I do too. It's because beyond short. five minutes, we have no way to know what could possibly happen. But yeah, let's I'm keep it in the good now. Things will happen, but yeah. I think good things will happen. So, guys, tonight between the three of us, I think there's a thousand different topics we could probably do a marathon podcast. However, our our other obligations will prevent us from doing so. But tonight, I was thinking, let's take a different tact instead of the the usual topics, Woody, that you get barraged with regularly. I was wondering if we could talk about experimentation tonight. The idea of just posing questions and trying new things. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I'm on board. So, so Woody, of, of course, many of our listeners are very familiar with your work, but if not, you know, Woody's a, a pioneer in the agile software space. He's brought mob programming to the forefront of agile practices. No estimates is also one of the hashtags that he's very active on and, and one of, I think, the three main advocates for and also just incredibly generous with his time within the Agile community, one of the, the mentors of, of our groups and, and just a, you know, a very active person in the community. Something I've always wondered about the questions that you ask, though, Woody, is where do they come from? Because you seem to question things that all of us some, at some point or another in our careers have taken for granted. I know that part of my career, estimates were just something that you always do. You take a task, you go back to your cubicle and you work alone. And those were just the normal things. And it never even occurred to me at certain points to question it. 
But it seems like you're taking those things, questioning them, bringing new practices to the forefront and turning every dial to 11. I'm wondering if you have some insights into what drives the your inquiries and what is it about some of these practices that you sense that so many others don't? Yes. Yeah, so first off, you're really overselling me, but uh, I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, what it comes down to is this. Uh, a long, long time ago, uh, I worked with a fellow. I was just a kid. I don't know exactly how old. I think it was 12, 13, 14. But I worked with a fellow who was probably in his 50s or 60s. 60s. He owned a, a plant nursery where he, he actually bred and raised uh, uh, hybridized uh, daylilies, hemerocallis, and he also was a, um, he was really into roses. He did a lot of experimenting. His background was as a chemist, and he had traveled all over the world collecting plant samples uh, in his younger days. And he settled into this little town where I was growing up, and he had this plant nursery. And uh, I think that I didn't discover the idea of, of what I'm doing as far as questioning things uh, there, but it, it really opened my eyes up a bit to it. So I, what I found with him was there was almost nothing that uh, he took for granted. He just, you know, if, if he read about something that would seem like a marvelous new practice, he would experiment with it. Uh, if he read about something that, was, uh, that people were saying, uh, we tried this and it isn't working for us, well, he would want to try the experiments and see why it wasn't working. You know, it wasn't about... Um, it wasn't about just taking things for granted. And again, I don't know that I got that from him, but I certainly, he sure emphasized it for me. And as a little kid, you know, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty open to these ideas. And I actually found it rather intriguing to, to just look at something and say, well, now why is it happening that way? And what if we do this? And so on. He gave me a little um, soil test kit. I don't know if you guys have ever had one of those. Like they were these old wooden boxes, these little wooden boxes. They were full of little chemicals for testing the acidity and, and the different nutrient levels in the soils. So that was, a, that was a wonderful thing for me too. It's like get inquisitive. And I think it was his way of saying, you know, at age 12 or 13 or 14, whatever you were, this is a great time to start getting inquisitive about stuff. And he'd set little things out for me to do. So... Maybe I've gone a little too long on that, but this goes back that far in my life. I'm not a young guy. And what I noticed over the years, no matter where I worked, was that there were, there were things taken for granted in how we should do things. I'm perfectly open to just taking things for granted when it doesn't seem to matter. But with things that seem to matter, then I, I want to know more. And I use this in my maxims. You know, I question everything about the way I do my work. I especially question the things that I have the most faith in or the most belief or trust in. The things that I just think are absolutely true, those are the things I want to question the most. I can remember you, uh, I was attending a, a conference that, that you were speaking at, Woody, and it was one of the first times I think I had ever seen your talk on, on pure agile or real agile. And, and you had introduced ideas in there like estimating and, you know, no time boxes and things like that. And I remember that was, that was God, maybe three or four years ago. And I, I can remember thinking to myself, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, why, what would happen if we did, you know, free ourselves of these things? I noticed in the room, there were so many people that had their eyes, like they were deer in headlights at some of the things you were saying, because it challenged all their assumptions, right? Um, so if you're kind of an inquiring mind, how do you find the best way to engage people with your questioning in a way that brings them into the conversation? Oh, that's an excellent 
excellent uh, thing to ponder. Over the years, I started off with software development about 30 plus years ago, but I, was, I owned some other businesses at that time, and I was using the software I was writing for some specific things I wanted to do, controlling some machines, collecting data off some machines, bookkeeping and stuff that you couldn't buy software for easily that you could actually count on, because that, that was the driving, what was driving me to get into it. And so I found out after 15 years of doing that, that I was more interested in software development than in the other things I was doing. So I took a step out into uh, managing a project for somebody where there were uh, four or five developers and they needed the, the main guy needed to do some traveling and he wanted someone on hand that he that he knew that he could trust and that knew programming that could run things while he was gone. Actually, he was gone for a day or two at a time and we were doing some very critical work that had to be it was. It dealt with some pretty important things. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And he was basically doing what we would now call extreme programming. And I learned a lot from him. He all, I was, this was only a three-month contract. There were a lot of practices that they were doing that were not common. And a lot of things that they were doing that have become very common now. After that three months, which I thought, boy, I'm really glad I've moved into this as, as my vocation. I'm going to love this. Then I found the next place I went. They weren't doing anything like that. Yeah. And I started watching all the dysfunction. And I like to, to think of it that way because they, they could have had it highly uh, wonderful there. And what they were basically doing was making a, an environment where nobody could excel at their work. So how do you bring somebody forward from that to there's some better ways we can do it? Yeah, very, very that, carefully, right? With a lot of respect, I'm sure. Not at that time, maybe. But yeah, I've learned that since then. No, I was, I actually was feeling very much so there that I, all I need to do is nudge people in the right direction. And we could see a little bit of improvement. It just it started make, making me think, you know, how do we how do we help make things better? when we don't really know what better is. All we know is that a lot of stuff isn't very good. Like if, if somebody, if you ever see anybody at work break out in tears because of how they're being treated, you know that's, I hope everybody would know that's not a good thing. And when you see those kinds of things, you go, well, there's got to be a better way to do it than this. And I'm going to flatly state right here that I've been a boss many years I've done all kinds of stuff that I would go back now and tell my original self back then to uh, not do that. But sometimes that's how you learn. At that time, it was just me noticing the problems and starting to say we can do better. And that's when, like, with the, the, the whole no estimates thing, in a way, started there for me. Not that we want to talk about no estimates, but the idea that I was noticing a pattern. And this pattern I have come to call the pattern of continuous no improvements. And uh, what I noticed that during their iterations, which this was pre-Agile, uh, their iterations were six weeks. At the end of each period, they would do a sort of a, a gather together and see how things are going. You could think of it as a lessons learned. Uh, now we might talk, call it a retrospective. It wasn't quite facilitated that way. But I could see that they had some problems coming up and they wanted to work on them. They worked on them. They worked hard to make them go away. Uh, they discussed them and analyzed and, and took plans and actions to do this. And then they would gather again in six weeks and they'd still have the same problem. And so they'd set out to solve them and in six weeks they'd have the same problem. Okay, so this, to me this is a pattern. And this is a pattern that sometimes points to the idea that we're dealing with the symptom and not the problem. And we have to start saying, well, what's the problem here? That goes for many, many, many things. Whenever I see that, so that's you asked, you know, what, how do I go about questioning or how do I go about asking the right questions about things? I, I want to know what are the things that we have as recurring problems that we think we're trying to solve and let's see if we are actually dealing with the problem. And that then we can introduce this idea of a five whys inquiry or a five whys uh, session. 
And, but there are other ways, too. There's more mild ways to do, do it than five whys, because uh, five whys uh, is, is not an easy thing to do. We could start in a gentler way. But there you go. So uh, I, I would say, really, the most important thing is to watch for the things that are going well and turn them up, while at the same time, watch for the things that, are, uh, that we might be addressing the, the symptom rather than than the problem itself. I've stolen a line from Michael Spade. Um, and so I'll say it right now. I stole it from Michael Spade. Uh, his tagline, this, this tagline of benevolent troublemaker. And oh, there I, you I go. Used that Cause I've, I've loved that. It, it's, it's kind of felt like a lot of what I do when I get in and, and I'm asking a lot of questions, kind of making trouble, but designed towards a good thing. And, and I, I, in everything that you said, I, I, I guess I can really relate to it. Cause I mean, it, it's difficult though for me sometimes, Woody, I don't know if you feel the same way, but there's times when I can feel my agenda, whether it be a team or an organization, a system of work, where I feel like I know the direction that it should go. But I know that I can't just suggest it because there are people that are kind of oblivious. It is the status quo and they're comfortable in there. And that's kind of why I asked the question about how do you invoke change or how do you evoke change when you know where it should go, but you're a little hesitant of being able to just outright experiment or to tell people that they need ah. to change. So that's intriguing because I never know what's the right way to go. I'm going to discover that. I, and I really want to make that clear. If I knew you know, how to do things that would solve these problems, then they wouldn't be problems. So it's, it's, uh, I often know, like for, let's just say uh, I was brought into a company uh, and they, they said, Woody, we want, to, we want to really learn what it means to be agile or to transform our company to be agile or adopt agile or adapt to agile or some kind of a term that nobody gets mad at you for using when you talk about doing agile. Because when you say doing agile, then they get mad at you because you can't <laughs> do it. You know, and that, that's all right. Uh, I kind of like that. Woody, don't do agile, be agile. That's right. Come on. Right. And, and, that, and that's good. I mean, I, and I'll go along <laughs> with anything anybody says about that kind of stuff. These little war words. Words about, uh, uh, I mean, words about words are kind of goofy. I, I don't really see, and now somebody's going to get, better cut that out. Um, <laughs> I don't see a lot of No, values. let's leave it and say it again. The war, the war of words is goofy. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just like, okay, let's, you know, in a conversation like this, we can just move past it. I don't really know the right terminology, you know, but I think that we, so if somebody came to me and said, look, come in here, we want to do this, um, I only have a few principles that I work by. And one is, I believe that the people doing the work can best determine how to do that work. If they are given the freedom, if that's the right word, if they're liberated, to be able to work in an environment where they're allowed to do that and they understand that they are free to do that, then they will excel. They're going to figure it out. I don't really know how to put that in place for someone. That's something we discover in any particular situation. There's some really great sayings about this stuff. I'm going to share one with you. I think that the beginning point for me in, in any of these things is that we often come to the point where we want to know how to do something when that's the end of the path. The beginning is figuring out the right questions to ask. So this comes from Peter Block. And I love this quote from him. Transformation comes more from pursuing profound questions 
than seeking practical answers. So if we find the right questions to pursue, when, it, when we finally get to where we're understanding that, the how reveals itself. So some, when somebody asks me, well, how can we do X or how can we do Y? You see that a lot with, uh, with the no estimates stuff. Um, you know, that's not the space that I am living in. My space is, hey, I've noticed some things. I want to talk about these things and I want to figure out what are the right questions for me to be asking myself about these things that I most believe in. I think you've hit the right questions. And the reason I say that, this is purely anecdotal and I understand that that's not a researched or, or well-proven kind of thing, but the stories and the questions resonate. And they not only resonate, they resonate with a large group of people. And to me, when you stumble onto a question such as, why are we estimating so much? And you actually get a lot of participation around a hashtag, which is somewhat unusual on Twitter, right? There's not, there's not a a devoted following to, to many hashtags in my experience, but no estimates has developers, managers, you know, C-level. There's all sorts of people following this hashtag engaged in a conversation about something that has resonated across organizations, across domains, across, you know, whether you're a contractor, a full-time employee, a business owner, these things resonate. Same with mob programming. People realize that we're we're social creatures we were born to communicate that's that's the that's the we were given two ears and a mouth and a brain that was they're all designed to work in in tandem to communicate convey convey ideas so why would we work solo yeah so this is this this is an interesting question itself is why why uh so right off the bat i don't know the right questions to be asking about this but we can pose a couple one is, why do we work in the work patterns that we currently work in? What are the, what are the patterns? That's another question. Where did they come from for us? Why are we using them? You know, one thing I like to, somebody pointed this out to me a while back. You know, we did not have even anything close to written language or some kind of a ri- way of writing things until about 5,000 years ago. So where we're at right now is, you know, we have lots of written communications, but overall, depending on how back, far back man's history goes or the human, human's history goes, um, we've probably spent a lot more time not communicating with writing than we have with writing. And I think it goes for most uh, of humanity. It's just the last three, four hundred years at the most that, that it was generally something people could do, and maybe just the last few hundred years that what you might consider the typical person was able to read or write. So how much experience do we have with those things? So that's one of the questions I would want to ask. You know, why, what makes us think that what we're doing right now is, is the best way? Do we, can we look back and say, so I, that's just, a, I would ponder that. So this is a good thing like with mob programming. I'll share one thing there with mob programming. When I first started talking about mob programming, it was at the Agile Alliance 2012, not maybe the very first time, but the first time at a larger conference, I suppose, uh, that was in uh, Grapevine, Texas, near Dallas. And several people came up to me and had asked, what is this thing we're hearing about this where you guys are all working together? And after the third time, like within 20 or 30 minutes of somebody coming up and asking me and me kind of ex- trying to explain, 
I said, I'm going to go do, I'll put together an open jam uh, session tomorrow. <laughs> Let me gather some, some things and my thoughts and I will, I, I will do a presentation. So I started, the people kept coming. I don't know how many, but it was 10 or 12 that day. And so that's what I did. So what I did was just, I asked the guys, I sent an email to my crew back at Hunter. I asked them to just take a couple pictures and write a list of all the things that they could think about that they, that, that what mob programming meant to them. We came up with a list of 20 things and I started and I presented that to a crowd of, I don't know, 20 people in that open jam. And uh, people started asking questions. So I, I wrote them down. I could answer some, but I wrote the questions down and that became the basis of my presentation on mob programming. I would pose, I would ask the question that somebody asked and then I would try to answer it. So the one that I want to share here is, is the first question everybody asks. Maybe I should ask you guys, what do you think would be the first question people ask when they first are exposed to the idea of uh, five or six people working on one thing at one time at one computer? How do you get anything done? <laughs> that's a good question, and that's one that I've often heard. But that's not the one that I've heard first or most. How does it make sense to pay six people to do the work of one person? That's kind of sort of it. Kind okay. of what I was alluding to, yeah. Yeah. So, so how do you get things done, or how can you get things done, or how do you, you know, that's a good question, too, because I hear that as well. But that first question, so at first I would just say, well, I don't know. It just, we get a lot of stuff done. We noticed we get a lot of stuff done. How can we do it? I don't know. So we started pondering that. And I pondered that question for a week or two, and then I started, this is a little trick that I do on myself. What's the, what's the inverse of that question? So what would be the opposite question, not the opposite, but, but a driving question that's sort of uh, the other side of that. And this is what I came up with. What are the things that destroy productivity? So or we could ask, how can you be productive? Let's ask the opposite. You know, when somebody, when somebody now asks, how can you be productive? I want to ask this question of myself. What are the things that destroy productivity? That's easy to list out. And as a matter of fact, whenever I give this talk, on mob programming, which can take an hour or so, I ask that question to the audience, and they invariably come up with at least a short list of these things. We came up with something like 20 things, and I think I've listed out about 40 now that I've heard over time. There's a group of really common questions, or common answers to that. One is communication problems. Another is thrashing, the idea that people get context switching. Uh, another one is meetings. Another one thing that destroys productivity is um, technical debt. So those are just a few of the items. And if I ask that of an audience of uh, 50 or 100 people who want to share back with me, I will hear all the things that I, that I could mention and more. And then I try to cover them. Well, that's, that's where we started. Okay, why aren't we, what are the communication problems that we came up, you know, that we saw? And why, are, why don't we have them anymore? Because we never set out to solve any of those problems. That's a critical thing. We just noticed they faded away. When we start working well together as a group, the kinds of problems that I've often seen just faded away. They were no longer there. You don't need to coordinate five or six people very much when they're always coordinated. You don't need to get alignment with five or six people who are always in alignment. So the communication issues with trying to keep people aligned and the, the load of management and trying to keep people aligned and working kind of in the same direction dissipates. You don't need that. Woody, when, when you hear 
when you hear people, you know, you give a mob programming talk, for example, and then you hear people say, wow, that was, and they're really inspired by it, obviously. Do you feel concerned that people will just go out and do it without understanding all the whys that you've realized and why that system worked for a group of people and why it might work for other people? Do you ever, or do you encourage people, hey, just go out there and try these things? Like when you have an experiment, just go out and try it and see what happens. So I've seen right now, I know of at least 20 or 30 uh, companies or groups around the world that have been doing mob programming to some degree, some of them full time. Uh, One of them in particular, I believe they were introduced to mob programming by seeing that little three-minute video that that we made uh, back in 2012 of us working for a day, and it's time-lapse. Time-lapse camera. That's right. And yeah. they, they saw that, and then, and then they had shared with them. I wasn't there, and I didn't know they were doing this. It was just, hey, here's an interesting thing. A consultant or a coach was there helping them. Here's an interesting thing. You know, look at this. What do you think of this? And then, so they showed the video, and then, then they gave the, a couple simple guidelines that we use, the main one being the strong pairing mechanism uh, that, uh, uh, that Llewellyn Falco uh, devised, and the, that's the idea that for an idea to go, from somebody's head into the computer, it has to go through someone else's hands. And that's a very simple but extremely powerful concept. But they were just given those two little things and maybe a couple others because we have our principle of of behaving nicely to each other, be excellent to each other, or as we put it, uh, treat each other with kindness, consideration, and respect. I don't think they were given much more than that, 15 minutes and off and running. And now they're also doing it quite a bit and they're sharing it at conferences and so on. This is a group in England. Some of the people who have been going around and doing this, you know, some of the, uh, I would say more coach types, they're just sharing this concept. It's up to whoever hears it to take the actions themselves. I will share one thing that I think is critically important. I put it into every talk that I do. The, the, the talk of mob programming isn't about mob programming. It's about getting good at retrospectives. If you really figure out how to be good at retrospectives, retrospectives aren't about how do we keep it fun or how do we keep it engaging and these sorts of things, which is, that's great. But to me, I would almost say, if we're looking for ways to keep it fun and engaging, I would take that as a smell. And to me, a smell is an indication of a possible problem. I don't think a smell indicates a problem. It's like if I, if I walk into my home here and I go, Boy, it's, it, you know, it smells like something uh, like an animal got in here and um, I better go seek this out. And then I just find that I left a banana peel behind the chair. All I got to do is throw the banana peel outside <laughs> on the pile heap of, of stuff out, out front of my house and um, the smell goes away. I don't have to do anything special. It wasn't a problem. It was just the, the odor was there. But sometimes it is something worse and you got to take care of it. Yeah. So that's sort of how I use a smell. A smell is just a, a, an idea that if we notice something that is a bit, you know, stinky, then we should investigate. And if we find it is a problem, then we can go further. You know, yeah. so that's what I see about, you know, this is the thing with retrospectives. If they aren't engaging, let's figure out what it is that we really need to do to be engaged on the purpose, the purpose of the retrospective. And I take retrospectives very seriously, but that doesn't mean it's a, a serious time where everybody's sitting there with a grumpy look on their face. We can do them very quickly. We can also take our time at them if we feel that we'd like to. But the key to it is 
don't wait too long before you do the next retrospective. If, yeah, if right. in 10 minutes something wonderful happens, um, as soon as you get a chance a minute later, reflect on it and say, what can we tune and adjust now, knowing what, seeing what we just saw? Yeah. Woody, what do you think is the biggest barrier that you've seen on teams to having meaningful, productive retrospectives? Yeah, I'd have to give that quite a bit of thought. I, I, for a while there, sure. I was getting invited uh, to companies to come and um, kind of watch their practices, how they were doing things. And um, one thing that I, I noticed that I thought was particularly bad was, was having a, a process in place that we couldn't deviate from. That, that the, it was thought that if we do these steps, you know, and do them just right, we're going to have the results we want. And, and I, so I wouldn't say necessarily that's always bad, but I think a retrospective has got to be a, a much, less, um, much less controlled thing. But, you know, hey, whatever works for you, if, you, if in your organization you're at the place where that just isn't going to happen, then maybe that's something we could take a, a baby step towards. But that's one thing I've, I've noticed frequently, to see these retrospectives where it, uh, it was clear that, um, that it, the process was more important than the people, than the interactions. Yeah, I'll share. I'll share a little bit um, that kind of ties both the what 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 you just talked about with with mob programming and the whys behind it and retrospectives. That you'll probably enjoy this. Woody. Um, I had the opportunity a couple months ago since you know I still talk with you know the your your old team at at Hunter the the mob Jason Kearney and Chris Lucian and Dexter and um, Aaron all. So I took a team to go sit down with the mob and Hunter, and they got to spend a day in the mob with them. And one that was pretty awesome just to, you know, have them experience that, that culture and that dynamic, exactly what you talked about, um, the idea of, of respecting and trusting one another. And that was a real big thing for them. They're like, wow, that we really kind of want that <laughs> in our team. But one of the big takeaways that they also had um, in, in getting to, you know, really, really mob for a day was that there was almost an on-demand retro. So just, just like what you said about not, not waiting. Wow, that was awesome. Let's retrospect on that. What what did we do to make that happen? You know, and they 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 acted on it right away. And it wasn't a big structured ceremony with a big you know bunch of sticky notes and a big ceremony around this. It was just very pointed. It was very specific, but it stayed very true to the team culture of respect and conversation. But it was very directed, and there was clearly meaning and and a real strong desire behind that. And they they took that and they said um, the 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 team that I was with they they came back and said you know. When something happens, we need, to, we need to ensure from a team perspective, we always have a safe place in our team because we should retrospect when something happens that matters. And we can't do that unless we always have that, that safe place and it's what, it's what we want. So, so they took a lot. It's, it's funny. They didn't even get into a lot of the, the, the technical practices and really being impressed by, even though they, they got a good demonstration or insight into you know, things like, like TDD and such, but it was almost the trust and the safety in the team and the ability and the desire to want to act on continuous improvement the second they notice something. And that was a really big takeaway. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, someone shared with me once the idea that if you can just improve things one-tenth of one percent a day, you know, that you're going to come out better. And I, I, saw, I saw a quote that I've been using recently. I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but basically um, find some way to, to make it so that things will be better tomorrow every day. And that's, that's, those are all part of, I would consider, somewhat common um, 
you know, philosophies or parts of philosophies. Just the basic idea that, that I shared at the beginning, I believe I shared at the beginning, about Tom Peters, you know, excellence mm-hmm. is about the next five minutes. And that's not an exact quote of, it, of his, maybe, but I hope it's close enough. There's one from uh, Emerson um, that's kind of closely related. And, and uh, if you don't mind me doing another quote, um, but sure. he said, you know, to f- <laughs> No, please. To finish the moment, to find the journey's end in every step of the road, to live the greatest number of good hours is wisdom. This is very closely related to that. So th- these are deep things, in my opinion, that we kind of lose in the, in the uh, rapid pace of the way we're doing things. But the beauty of this rapid pace of the way we're doing things is it exists because the mechanisms are in place to, um, to, to have them exist. And those mechanisms kind of give us the path forward. So we have this rapid pace today because communication is so easy to do. Uh, like the three of us here are together in one space, but I don't know where you guys are. You're in some other part of the country or the world for that matter. And so we, we can do things we couldn't have done easily, you know, 20 or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago in a lot of cases. So, you know, this rapid pace of change that we have right now is also, it's giving us some problems, but it's giving us some marvelous new ways to do things. So it's all good. So I'll share one thing about that instant retrospective concept. It came to me once a long time ago that if we wait to reflect on stuff, then we'll lose the essence of it. So I, I was working with someone who their pattern was, oh, we just keep this uh, journal and we write down all the things that happen and then we kind of graph it up here. You know, we put, oh, this is what was happening at that time, this was happening at this time. And I thought, well, that's, that's a, first of all, interesting and it seems like a lot of work. How well is it working for you? And so um, I looked at what they were doing and I think by the time they got to where they were actually using that information, the essence of it had dissipated and people weren't really that interested at that moment anymore. So if a big problem comes along, we feel it's important to deal with it right now. But when these little moments happen, we kind of set them aside and deal with them later. And I like to see those, those little things can give us that one-tenth of one percent improvement. Why not, why not pluck those as well? I've had this question on my mind that came up from something that you said earlier, Woody, when you know, we were talking about if we're observing systems or we're observing people, you never feel like you have an agenda or a specific way of, of, of working or something in mind. Um, and I want to press you a little bit on that with, with, with a question, because I know in having talked with you and, and learned from you, you, you believe very strongly in the values and principles informing systems of work the, the, from the, you know, the Agile Manifesto. You, you really believe in, in that as a way of being and working. Wouldn't you see that sometimes and think to yourself, I, 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 I want to send them in a direction that is more informed by these, you know, by, by, by Agile, by, by the values, by the principles that, that, that we believe in? And I guess the question I'll ask is, if you were to test a company, if a company said, I'm Agile or we're Agile or a team or whoever, what would you look for? What, what, what would you test or what, what would you measure to be able to say, yeah, I, 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 think, I think you guys are on the right track? Oh, that's a... That's a tough one. So I mean, first is, of all, is there a right way? I mean, is there something that we would look for? So what, what I believe the Agile Manifesto is about, and I, I would say it's, it's pretty rock solid. It's, it's 
it was a, a gathering of ideas of a certain time and a certain place. But I think it's it's almost almost uh, timeless. What they did there was put together some pretty good stuff that we can use as a philosophy of software development. Yeah, I mean, it's basically what's that? A means of thinking, right? A way, yeah, to, a way to think to about. It. That's yeah. right. And so, where where it, what they did there was they did the the best they could agree to. I think I wasn't there. I don't know, but. I don't think they would have all signed this if they didn't all agree to some aspect of it that, that uh, they found. So basically what they did is they put together this way that we can use to guide us in making decisions about the specific practices that we're going to do. Yeah, I like to think of it this way. We have these guides, but we have to have a way to, to fulfill them. So if you think of it as a philosophy, which is sort of a, a way to um, – a way to think about practical affairs of humans, a way to do things. So we, we need the things that we will do, but the guides allow us to choose those things that we'll do. So it's really easy to take that Agile Manifesto and kind of use it as a way to ask about any particular practice uh, an organization is doing. What does this support? What is this doing that's to support the, the guidance that we've been given? An example would be sustainability. So if we have a practice of you have to work during during the last two weeks before a um, to before a deployment. You have to work uh, a, an extra two hours a day. Then I would I would want to ask how how does that support what the Agile Manifesto says? As a matter of fact, I think there's a, enough studies out there that even slight pressures lead to bad decision making. So we would have to have, have a pretty good example for ourselves, a good way to verify that making everybody work an extra two hours every day. And I did. I was on one of these once where we were um, invited to work all weekend without sleep. Invited, right? Yeah, invited, um, which pretty much meant um, you've got to come in. And um, <laughs> people would just fall asleep on the floor. And this was at a pretty big place with lots and lots of people. They would find a place under their desk to fall asleep when they needed to sleep. I, I don't think that we were making very good decisions after the first day, but wow. it went on for three days. Wow. Um, you know, can we, what, what of that can we say was, uh, is, is living up to the guidance that we have? Now, I don't believe that the Agile Manifesto is complete. I think there's other things we can be that we could have added to it or could, and so I do. You know, when I think something's important, um, I bring it along with me. And on the other hand, does everything in there belong? And I think it pretty much does. And maybe we just need to tweak it a little bit as we come better. We become better and better technically at doing some of the things it asks for. But um, most of it, you know, it's it's pretty dang good. So that's that's what I would say. If you can show me that any practice that you are using pretty much supports, so I, I think of it this way. The practices we have is a set of ever-evolving practices and ever-evolving set of practices. So let's say we have 20 or 30 things that we do typically, and let's say one of them is TDD, test-driven development. And we use that. How is it supporting us in being agile, if that's the way we want to think of it? What, what is it helping us to do? Now, I'm not going to get into a discussion right now about that. I just wanted to make a point. 
if we're doing retrospectives and we're using some particular practices in those retrospectives, those I would want to say, I would want to look at them and say, what specifically is this doing in addressing the concerns that were addressed or were available in the in the Agile Manifesto? And when I say the Agile Manifesto, I mean the the uh, the values and the principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I, so we could have come up with something else. These were just uh, seventeen concerned people who uh, gathered together. They'd been talking about these things in various ways, and they wanted to see where where they were. I guess. And they came up with this, and I'm just so thankful they did. Matter of fact, I'll take this a big step further. As soon as I read that, which was several years after I first started being exposed to extreme programming ideas, I said, that is exactly, those four, the four values particularly, that's exactly what I had learned when I was first being exposed to extreme programming. Let's really focus on working with the customer. Let's really focus on the individuals and the interactions, the ability of people to work well together. Let's really focus on this idea that we're, gonna, we're building software, so let's make sure that we're getting it into use, working software. That means it's in use, you know, in my opinion. Of course, they probably somebody there is going to tell me I'm wrong. Um, that's all right. You know, um, responding to change, I mean, that's, these, are, these are brilliant things. These are brilliant things. But anyway, so there you go. I know I rambled off your topic maybe a little bit. No, but, no, it's uh, been great. Do you I once saw sorry, Zach, I'm gonna go, go. hijack back take for a your, second. Take your show back, Ryan. Take it back. No, no, I, I like the questions. I like where you're going. I just I recently did the uh, certified scrum product owner class with Jason Tanner and Aaron Copel. And while I wasn't necessarily worried about another certification, I'm fascinated by the product approach that these two gentlemen have. You know, Jason and Aaron have a really unique view. Aaron's more uh, lean startup, very deep background into that. So he brought a lean startup approach. And, and then Jason has just a phenomenal mind around road mapping, specifically story mapping. And then also the way that he approaches teams I really like. And an exercise that at first I hated but then immediately loved afterwards was the force ranking of the 12 Agile principles by the participants in the room. And so he, of course, took the, f the first one off, right? You know, the above all else, we value delighting the customer by frequent delivery of software, something like that, paraphrased, right? Mm -hmm. So that one has to come off because that one says above all else. So you put that one aside, but you take the other 11 and you say, you basically do a relative uh, prioritization. Put one on the wall and say, Whichever one it is, uh, the art of um, of not doing things, you know, I'm not good at citing these, but whichever one you put on the wall, you know, is this, this is the first one. Then the next one you pull up, you, they're on a card and you say, is this more or less important to the group? And by the end of a, a 30 or 40 minute exercise, because you're having this conversation about all of the different principles, you have a, a prioritized list of principles. You put the first one back on top because that's what we value above all else. And you've just... You've aligned the room, first of all, to the principles of the, the Agile Manifesto, but you've also learned what's most important to your organization. And then you can start having discussions around, well, why is sustainability at the bottom? Or why is the business and IT partnership at the bottom? And, and that becomes an, a very powerful mechanism, I think, to see why things aren't moving up or why things 
couldn't move up or they, they shouldn't move up or what would be so destructive about moving this one up. And it just led to some really interesting questions that I think perhaps not every environment's right for this exercise, but I just, I got a tremendous amount of value and it made me really think through what I value as an agilist and what I really need to focus on and improve upon. It's a very cool exercise that plays a lot off of what Woody even talked about, about creating the context to ask questions and ask meaningful questions, right? That's about, like, the things like that you, about the things you have the most faith in or the most trust in, the things we most believe. So for me, I actually have a list. I, I don't have it in front of me right at this moment of about 50 things that I've come to um, find are almost always useful for me. And so it's off of those that I'm, I'm most typically questioning myself. So I'll look at those, you know, like in any one particular week, I, I will have gone through all of them for a, a few minutes here or there. The idea that there are these things that I believe the most. What did I get wrong? Why is it that I believe this is, is, is the most important thing? And why, what's wrong with that? I want to ask myself that. It's kind of funny. When I make, when I make mention of this, uh, almost everybody wants to question me about the things I believe. And uh, what I'm encouraging people to do is, is question themselves about the things they believe. Because you really, we can't really change anybody else. It's kind of like you, you started with this earlier, Zach, the idea of you know, what, what do you do when you come into this organization? And in reality, um, what I found, and I, I, maybe I'll lay a little groundwork for this. Um, I spent a number of years at a company where I found things were bad and they were never going to get any better. So um, I didn't know that for sure. But after observing it for a few years, I started getting that feeling. So I started working really hard to see if I could actually make a difference to make things better. And it resulted in me making friends with a handful of people that are some of my closest friends even to this day. It, it ended up with me understanding how to find people in an organization who are ready for exploring ways to make things better. Now, not everybody has the same idea as what better might be, and that's why I like the principles like the Agile Manifesto. Then we can talk about them just like I think this forced ranking concept that you had, stacking the, stack ranking the principles. That's a real good uh, a questioning mechanism. Why don't we just take the things like that? And there's a lot of people have written about you know strengths-based leadership and uh, principles-based leadership and so on. And they have various exercises for let's get down to what we really value as quick as we can and consider it good enough for now as we go forward uh, at a little bit deeper level than we were before. So this one thing I would share is that at first I tried things like, um, boy, this TDD stuff looks really great to me. Uh, it's been working good for me. Anybody else want to learn it? And I could find a few people who wanted to do that. Or I would try this idea that's worked for me many times. I would read an article. I'd always look for a, the next thing to read that's short and, and makes, a, makes some good inroads into something I'm interested in. I'll print it out, and I'll have a couple copies. And anytime I'm in a conversation across a company, I'll say, hey, hey, I got this article I just read. I'd like to know what you think. Now, whether they read it or not is, uh, tells you a lot. Whether they get back to you to, uh, to talk about it tells you a lot. And whether they agree with you or not uh, tells you a lot. And I don't necessarily have to share our articles about stuff I agree with. 
It can be any topic that's related to the things that are interesting to, to me on making this a better place to work. That's a nice little thing. You just open up the door, and if people uh, are willing to, to join you with that, great. And if not, no big deal. So these are gentle ways to say, hey, I'm interested in something here. And then so at this particular location I was talking about, I found a handful of people, six or seven, who across the company who were interested in a lot of these things. And as I worked with them over the years, we got a lot of stuff done, which you might think under the radar. And then when an opportunity came for us to take on a project that was really, in a lot of ways, a very troubling thing, those were the people who naturally gathered to it. And we sort of, uh, I was asked in a way to kind of join the team. And um, nobody wanted to be on this team because it was a, a miserable mess. And uh, I said, you know, I would, I would love to join this team. And um, then they said, oh, good, then Woody, you're there as long as we get to do it in my own way. And by that time, they just wanted somebody to blame when everything went wrong. So um, they gave it to me. And then the first thing we did was we opened up the Lean Software Development Book uh, from Mary Poppendix and uh, Tom. And that's where we, what we did. We went through the book. We learned to do value stream maps and all the things that are in there. And we had a resounding success with this project. So, um, yeah, you just got to keep, uh, keep offering to others that uh, we can explore. We can, we can question. We can learn. Let's step forward. So, Woody, I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm wondering, what is the next big idea? So, you've got no estimates out there that's been resonating with people for a while now. <laughs> mob, mob programming, which I just saw a picture on Twitter of a really sweet setup. Two or three 50-inch televisions, really nice conference table. It seems like people are, like, pimping my mob programming efforts here. <laughs> it's, I think it's going to be a show soon. It's, it's just, it looked like an, an arcade, but it looked amazing. So, but what's the next, and I, not necessarily hashtag, but what's the next idea that's that's brewing in that brain of yours and, and what's going to be the, the new thing we're talking about in, in the next 12 months? Yeah, well, if I knew that, would I be bothering? Uh, I, I have no idea. We're going to discover that. This, the, the whole thing about this is about serendipity. Um, I, I read a book recently, really uh, speaks to a lot of the things that we're talking about here called uh, Wiki Management. Uh, I'll get you the author's name here. I should have it memorized. I believe it's a guy, the guy's name is Rod Collins. And he's actually talking about uh, a lot about this, the idea of all these disruptive things that have come along and completely changed industries. But, but I'm going to share, if you don't mind, I'll share a little bit that uh, is in that book. It's kind of fundamental part of that book. So I, I will share something with you before we go on. You've probably noticed in Twitter that every now and then, sometimes weekly, I post out saying, hey, I've got a, I've got a half hour or an hour to talk about no estimates or mob programming or anything agile. And uh, almost uh, invariably, I'll get two or three takers, and, but I only have a small amount of time, so I'll try and you know, arrange with others to speak later on. But it's pretty much like what we're doing here right now. We just ramble on. Sometimes um, it's more about a specific problem or a specific situation. Sometimes it's about much more general things than this. But this is a, if people are wondering, what's that like? It's kind of like this. So anyways, let me sit, share this one little bit. Okay. He's got this uh, concept here. It's sort of like the Agile uh, Manifesto, but I'm just going to read it off. There's five items. Serendipity versus planning. Self-organized versus centrally organized. 
emergent versus directed, simple rules versus detailed coordination, transparency versus control. I liked all of that. I yeah. think that, that that's, this is um, the future is this um, connected world. But I'm not leading that conversation. That's coming from many, many other people. You know, you've got the Kinefin and uh, ideas, and you've got the beyond budgeting things. You've got uh, all kinds of new management ideas. And I think that that's what these are the things we need to be following. But I, from my own personal cache of things, mob programming and no estimates are little tiny little things compared to the things we need to be dealing with. They're just things that happen to pique people's interest at this particular moment. Uh, the things that I'm thinking about related to these include the idea not just of mob programming as an idea where we get everybody together to work together, but also how do we get people to work together when we can't be together? How can we solve our communication problems when we're divided by, uh, by time zones? and by languages, and so on and so on. Um, I can envision a world easily where we, we can become uh, much more excited about our daily work, that we yeah. can excel in what we do moment by moment, that the environment is in place where, where great things just happen. And you know that quote that I use from Robert Henry all the time is that the object isn't to make art, it's to be in that wonderful state where art is inevitable. Ah. And if I use it from my own point of view, it's um, if we allow people, that's probably the wrong term, but if, the, if, the, if things are in place where people are, can do awesome things, they will do awesome things. If things are in place where people can do awesome things, they will do awesome things. It's just, those are the things we need to be paying attention to. It, when we pay attention to the wrong things, those things drop by the wayside. And if we focused on making it easy for people to be excellent or find their own excellence, then we're going to get real good results. And if we're looking for ways to control our processes, then we've abandoned the chance to get the real good results. Yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time. If you think about the technology we have, what we've learned and what we know, I mean... In the last couple of years, I've seen a movement, uh, at least in the companies that I've talked with, that, that I didn't see you know, a few years back, um, really starting to look and question the, the evolution of organizations, like the promotion model, the management paradigm in companies, and, and looking at, at, at how different systems of work could make people happier, which could result in better products and more innovation. And it's, it's an exciting time because I... We've never been this capable, you know, and if we can free ourselves up to that infinite potential of people to solve really complex problems, I think, I think some amazing things could happen um, in some of these next generation organizations. And that, that to me is, is just, just like you said, I mean, for me personally, that's, that's the thing that's most on my mind. Not, not necessarily some of the little things about how we're building software. It's, it's kind of the idea of what an agile organization looks like and, and how business 50 years from now well, hopefully people will, will, will think of work entirely different than they do today. And that, that's what excites me. So, you know, I, I love the comments you guys are making about the nature of work. I actually think we're in for, we're up for a renaissance. 
we used to have craftsmen. You'd work with your hands. You'd make amazing, beautiful things. It would take time. It would be well-crafted. It would be uh, almost built, built to last and, and built in this spectacular way. It was just a true piece of art, re- regardless of you're a blacksmith, a woodworker, in, mo- in more modern times, you're a carpenter. You're, whatever work you're doing, it was a skilled trade. And now, with the technology era and the technology age, that thinking kind of went to the wayside for a bit. But what I've been seeing is that people want to get back to XP. And they want to get back to the idea that we're craftsmen and craftswomen in, in this space. And I just, I love it. I love seeing us go back to a set of values and principles and practices such as XP that force us to do the right things in, in a gentle, loving way. And that also allows us and empowers us to create quality stuff. And it, I just, I love seeing that that is emphasized now. That, that they, the quality, that, that teams are demanding to be allowed to deliver quality. And I hope that continues because that will drive, I, I think, a lot of things as well. So this is, this is an important thing. And this is, a very, this is a very difficult thing. The practices that we are finding are really excellent for us. In, in the future, we will look back on and say, yeah, look at how we used to do things. So a real good e- example uh, for us right now is this frequency of deployment that, that people can have. So uh, when the Agile Manifesto was written, you know, that, that first principle that you were, you were um, mentioning is actually addresses the idea of continuously delivering valuable software. So that, that concept of continuous delivery was there way back when. You know, our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Now, there's a step beyond continuous delivery, but in those days, continuous kind of meant every week or every two weeks. There were some people delivering stuff much more frequently, but now it's very, very much more possible to deliver, and there's models to do that with continuous deployment uh, ideas and so on. And you'll see some companies, you know, I don't won't quote specific companies that are deploying literally every change that gets made to their code base is automatically deployed or put into a deployed uh, uh I don't know, pipeline's not the right word, but it's going to be in front of users shortly if it passes all tests and, and so on. So these things are big. These are big differences and big changes that are ha- make, happening. Craftsmanship and software development, I think it's a critical concept that we have to pay attention to these, these things. The, the cost to us of not paying attention to them is very, very high. Now, it's always going to depend on the purpose of the software. But it's rare that paying attention to the craft of it is, is not a good thing to do. Even with stuff that you think you're going to throw away. What I've often seen is, let's say over a two-week period where we're experimenting with something, by the end of that two-week period, things can become very difficult to work with if we didn't do a good job of keeping them easy to work with. So do we want to be effective every day or just for the first few days? No, it's, it, I think we want to be effective every day. Nice. I work with some amazing people. Is it okay to make an advertisement? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I work with some amazing people in industrial logic. Uh, I would say some of the most brilliant people in this, in this space today. They've dedicated their lives to helping people learn to be excellent at delivering software. 
at writing software, at having a livable work environment, at having practices that give us confidence in the work we do. Some of my earliest readings that I've done uh, on these subjects came from people in this, in this company. I really think the whole industry is, like you were saying, it's in a renaissance. We really do realize that we need this. And I'm really glad for myself to be part of a group that's trying to do this. So that's my advertisement. I would say for myself, it's an honor to work for these folks at Industrial Logic and work side by side as a team member with these brilliant people. I would like to invite anybody to get in touch with me through Twitter if you ever do want to talk about uh, Skype about uh, any of these topics. And uh, no charge, of course. It just has to fit into my time. Uh, if you run into me at a conference and you have nice, nice things to say, then please come right up and talk with me. And, um, and if you have nasty things to say, I'm sure someone wants to hear about it, so you can go talk to them. Um, <laughs> because that's the way these things are, right? Uh, I, I just I want to know how you're doing, what you're doing, how we can work better to make this a better uh, world of work for us. I really, truly feel that if we grasp how to do that, then we get better lives as well. And, and I invite everybody to join us in doing that. Well, Woody, Zach and I surely are honored that, that you took time out of your evening to join us. Really appreciate all the time that you, you've donated to me to, to help me learn more about Agile. I know, Zach, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way about just the, the, the generosity of time that, that Woody's shown. And there's any closing remarks you'd like to make tonight, Woody? I, I don't want to... I want, I want to be respectful of your time. I think we've hit our time box, but any other plugs or any other uh, items you'd like to, to note before we wrap up tonight? Well, first of all, thank you guys very much for inviting me to speak. There's a couple things I want to share. The first one is another Peter Block, and that's um, to, the, to me this is really important. The value of another's experience is to give us hope, not to tell us how or whether to proceed. I started off sharing things about mob programming because people started asking me about it at a particular conference. Somebody had seen what we did and was telling other people, you've got to see what these crazy guys are doing. And then, and the no estimates was almost exactly the same thing. I, I had been in a conversation with Vasco Duarte and Neil Killick and Ron Jeffries, and I had been sharing a little bit of an idea of how I'd worked on a particular project where I didn't use estimates for trying to figure out the cost, really the time to get something done. And uh, Ron kind of uh, asked me, well, why don't you write a blog post about that? So I did. And I tagged it in with a hashtag in Twitter of no estimates. And so it was just the idea that I'm sharing some things that I've done, and maybe other people can get some hope that they can make their own things better. But I have another quote I want to share if I could do that. This one's from Russell Eckhoff. I think I, I love this one. Managers who don't know how to measure what they want settle for wanting what they can measure. This is, this is a quote that I learned a while back, but it just seems to be so pervasive that I, I want to spread that around quite a bit. I want people to think about why are we measuring the things we're measuring? That, that may be a big theme that I'll pick up on, but for the time being, I just, I'd, like to, I'd like to make it clear we need to be thinking about that, in my opinion. I question that for myself. Am I trying to measure stuff that is just I've settled on because it's something I figured out how to measure instead of being something that's really meaningful to measure? Because I can't – I'll take it a big step further. I think it's rare that we can measure the things that are truly meaningful. 
Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because you have to ask the, the, the question. Sometimes you just take the metrics and what we're measuring today and ask the question, how would I measure this up? How would I take what we're measuring today and try to look at it at a higher level? What would that measurement look like? And usually that gets us towards a stronger outcome, you know, for us to focus on that, that's more collective rather than oftentimes very individual based, which is less useful. So how, how can we measure it up? How can we go up? To figure yeah. out? Zach, how can people reach out and torment you? Um, well, I'm on Twitter. You can, you know, follow me at, it's my full name, at Zach Boniker, Z-A-C-H-B as in boy, O-N-A-K-E-R. Um, you can get me on LinkedIn. Um, I LinkedIn is kind of an evil application, but you can you know connect me there. Or yeah, as I said, me- message me or follow me on Twitter. And if you want my my personal email, then let's chat. Because just like Woody, um, I enjoy these type of conversations, and I'm happy to donate my time to really anything as long as it's valuable. And I'm Ryan Ripley. Once again, you can reach me on Twitter at Ryan Ripley. I'm also on LinkedIn with Zach. It is an evil app, but you can reach out and connect to me there. AgileAnswerMan.com for previous episodes of Agile for Humans. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Your feedback is what keeps us going. We love our listeners. We get a lot of great messages through Twitter, through email. The feedback is humbling. The The number of downloads, the fact that you guys are sharing this show, I, I am truly humbled that uh, that you guys are, are just spreading the word and, and just incredibly appreciative if you like what you're hearing, please send a message. Tell us if you're if you don't and you got good suggestions, tell us how we can do better. We're here to do better for you. Please go out to iTunes, leave a nice review. Five is our favorite number, and five stars gets the show spread and the message out even further. Thank you again for listening and have a great evening. Woody, thank you for being there. Thank you much, guys. I really had a great time. How long are we going to talk? Four days. Uh, We're going to do a straight four four days starting now and just... Well, that's not enough time to cover no estimates, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, did you you just estimate right there, Woody? (laughs) (laughs) Like I often say, estimates are good for many things. That's one of my... That's one of my earliest arguments. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.